Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Saturday, September 23rd, and Sunday, September 24th, 2023. It's been a little while since I've done one of these, so bear with me. Uh, there are a few anniversaries, and I realized I, uh, I kind of missed a couple of days in there while I was taking the week off, but uh, let's go through briefly. Uh, on September 21st, 1860, a combined British and French army defeated a Qing Dynasty army at the Battle of Palikau, which is named for a bridge in the eastern part of Beijing. Uh, the defeat caused the Shangfen, uh, Feng Emperor excuse me, to flee his capital, uh, leaving the city in European hands and hastening the end of the Second, second Opium War. Uh, on September 22nd, 1965, the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965 fought over Kashmir, ended with a UN-brokered ceasefire. This outcome was indecisive, to say the least. But the war was interesting because it caused India and Pakistan to look for new allies as the U.S. and U.K. both imposed arms embargoes on those countries. Pakistan's current relationship with China and India's Cold War relationship with the Soviet Union, which is reflected in its current relationship with Russia, both developed as a result of this. On September 22nd, 1980, the Iran-Iraq War began with a uh, massive attack by the Iraqi military on uh, Iranian uh, the, the Iranian Air Force intended to knock them out of the war before it really got started uh, I have a piece on this at the uh, up at the uh, website so I don't want to go into too much detail about the causes, but suffice to say, they were disputes over water rights and various other things, and Saddam Hussein just didn't cotton to the Islamic revolution that happened in Iran. He was a little worried that it was going to spread to his own Shia population in Iraq. Uh, and so he attacked Iran uh, with the intention, as I say, of, of uh, having a quick victory, knocking the Iranian air force out of the, bat out of the fight and moving in quickly to take advantage. It didn't work out. Uh, and the war lasted uh, for about nine years, give or take, one of the most destructive wars of the 20th century and one that still has ramifications uh, for the Middle East and for U.S. foreign policy, I would say, uh, to the present day. Uh, on September 23rd, 1803, uh, a small British army defeated a Maratha army that was as much as six or seven times its size at the Battle of Asaya. Uh, the British victory helped to establish military supremacy in the Deccan, the Maratha Empire's home turf, as it were, and led to Britain's victory in the Second Anglo-Maratha War. It also, uh, as a side note, boosted the military career of the British commander, a guy named uh, Arthur Wellesley, who would later be made the first Duke of Wellington and become, uh, let's say, a major thorn in Napoleon's side. On September 24th, 1877, the Japanese army defeated a heavily outnumbered and even more heavily outgunned samurai force under the command of rebel leader Saigo Takamori, uh, whose entire 500-man army was wiped out in the Battle of Shiroyama. The battle ended the Satsuma Rebellion and the role of the samurai as Japan's warrior class. Uh, if you've seen the 2003 film The Last Samurai, uh, it depicts a heavily fictionalized, and I think most people would argue quite a historical version of both the battle and the wider rebellion. All right, let's get into the news. In the Middle East and Syria, according to AFP, the Syrian military shelled a displaced persons camp in northwestern Syria on Saturday, killing at least two people and wounding two more. Uh, AFP's source here is the White Helmets Group, which is rebel-affiliated, to be clear, uh, although an AFP correspondent does appear to have corroborated the rocket strike. In Yemen... 
Uh, that Houthi negotiating team that traveled to Saudi Arabia back on September 14th, which we mentioned in the newsletter that day, left on Tuesday after five days of negotiations that, according to Al Jazeera, made, quote, some progress, end quote, on, quote, some of the main sticking points, end quote, that need to be unstuck in order to conclude the Yemen war. Those issues include a full lifting of the Saudi blockade of northern Yemen, a withdrawal of foreign fighters from the country, and an agreement on the use of public funds to pay public sector salaries in both rebel and government-held parts of Yemen. An agreement between the Houthis and the Saudis would have to be the pretext to a bigger peace deal involving the Yemeni government and various other players. The Saudis seem interested in settling the conflict uh, and may be feeling pressure to wrap it up as a precondition to a U.S.-Saudi defense pact. Uh, We'll have more uh, on that below. In Israel-Palestine, Israeli security forces killed at least two Palestinians in a raid early Sunday in the Nur Shams refugee camp outside the West Bank city of Torkarim. Uh, Hamas identified one of them as one of its fighters. Israeli officials claimed their forces came under attack as they were dismantling what they called an operational command center in the camp. In Gaza, meanwhile, tensions have been high for several days amid a new round of protests near the enclave's fence line. Uh, Israeli forces shot and wounded at least three people near the fence on Saturday, and the Israeli military bombarded sites linked to Hamas on Friday and Saturday with no reported casualties. In Saudi Arabia, as I hinted at above, the rumor mill is continuing to grind over the possibility of a Saudi-Israeli diplomatic normalization deal that would include a U.S.-Saudi Defense Plus Pact uh, as part of the appeal to Riyadh. The Wall Street Journal reported a few days ago that there's been movement behind the scenes towards setting up a uranium enrichment program for a Saudi nuclear program that would be the plus part uh, of that pact. Uh, This would be a huge change in policy for the U.S. and Israel, uh, both of which have long opposed anything uh, that might risk nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East, beyond, of course, the nukes that Israel itself definitely doesn't possess. Uh, The enrichment program would apparently be U.S.-run, though it's unclear what that would mean in practice, and it may be a fiction intended to ease fears of a Saudi nuclear weapon in the U.S. Congress. Uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, has been open about his desire for an enrichment program to compete with Iran's and with his intention to use that program to manufacture nuclear weapons should the Iranian government decide to go in that direction. Israel would be involved at a technical level using the expertise it's developed over decades of definitely not researching and building nuclear weapons to help set up this ostensibly civilian enrichment operation. Indeed, an Israeli green light is necessary, both because this effort is ultimately in the service of an of an Israeli-Saudi diplomatic agreement and because it would help allay those aforementioned congressional fears so Israeli leaders do have something of a veto over this whole scheme. Uh, the current Israeli government will need to weigh the political cost of allowing a Saudi enrichment program over the political benefit of normalization. In Iran, the anticipated Iran-U.S. prisoner swap has finally taken place with five previously imprisoned U.S. nationals and two family members departing Iran for Qatar uh, last Monday. I'm not sure what else to say about this deal as we've covered its terms fairly extensively in past roundups, but I think it's important to note that at present there is absolutely no overt indication that this is going to lead to further U.S.-Iranian negotiations about other issues. That may still manifest at some point, and if it does, we'll probably have as covertly as either government can manage. Uh, 
in Asia and Azerbaijan, there's not much new to say about the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh since Thursday's update. Uh, the ceasefire is more or less held, albeit with scattered claims of violations here and there. And Karabakh defense forces are reportedly disarming, while at least one convoy carrying humanitarian aid entered the region over the weekend. The one potentially major development, which isn't entirely unexpected, is that there were indications on Sunday of a nascent mass exodus of Armenians out of Karabakh and into Armenia proper. I hesitate to speak too soon about this, but leaders in Karabakh's Armenian community and Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan uh, indicated on Sunday that they expected all or nearly all of the 120,000 or so Armenians resident in Karabakh to leave rather than take their chances living under Azerbaijani rule. Azerbaijani officials have spent the past few days checking off the necessary rhetorical boxes about treating Armenians as equal citizens and reintegrating them into Azerbaijani society. The thing is, uh, Karabakh's Armenians were never really integrated into Azerbaijani society in the first place, since they'd already declared independence when the Soviet Union collapsed and Azerbaijan became an independent state. Given that they've now they've been cast as the enemy in Azerbaijani media and politics for over 30 years now, and given that the Azerbaijani government doesn't even treat its current citizens well, it's not terribly surprising that most or all of them, uh, all or most or all of the Karabakh Armenians are now looking for an exit. I expect Azerbaijani officials will be happy to let the Armenians ethnically cleanse Karabakh for them. Uh, in India, the Canadian government last Monday expelled the Indian government's intelligence chief in Canada, while Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused New Delhi of having executed a Sikh independence leader named Hardeep Singh Nijar earlier this year. Uh, Nijar was murdered in British Columbia back in June. He is considered... An activist among the Sikh, but is regarded as a terrorist criminal by the Indian government, which had pressed Canadian officials for his extradition. The response from Indian officials to Trudeau's accusations uh, has been two-pronged, denying it, denying them, I should say, while insisting that if they had been responsible for Nijar's murder, it would have been justified. This spat, which escalated on Thursday when the Indian government stopped processing visa applications in Canada, has put the U.S. government in an uncomfortable position. Canada is, of course, a NATO ally, but courting India has been a major part of the new Cold War project. And Canada is just not all that vital for U.S. strategic interests. Trudeau has yet to release any evidence linking India to Nijar's killing, but the U.S. position may have gotten a bit more awkward over the weekend when several outlets reported that it was the U.S. that provided Canadian officials with intelligence pointing toward Indian involvement. Uh, Van Jackson, at undipl his undiplomatic newsletter, this is the first of two mentions he'll get in tonight's newsletter, argues that this incident should cause Washington to rethink its devotion to India and its reactionary government. Uh, I do have a link to a piece he wrote on this. Certainly under any interpretation of international law or basic norms, what New Delhi allegedly did here was not permissible. Of course, since 2001, the U.S. government has granted itself the right to kill people in several other countries at will, so this is probably not a norm that the U.S. can credibly enforce. In Vietnam, according to Reuters, the U.S. and Vietnamese governments are working on their biggest arms deal ever, one that would include the provision of F-16s to Hanoi. This is apparently still in the very preliminary stages and could easily fall apart, particularly over financing 
the Vietnamese government isn't exactly in position to pay full markup for U.S. weapons. But if it comes to fruition, it would be a fairly stunning commentary on the state uh, of the Vietnamese-U.S. relationship, and by extension, the state of the Vietnamese-Chinese relationship. The latter is still strong, but it's fraying over competing claims in the South China Sea, and it seems the U.S. is benefiting. In the Philippines, speaking of relationships that are fraying because of the South China Sea, the Philippine government on Sunday accused China of installing what it called a floating barrier to prevent Philippine nationals from fishing in the disputed Scarborough Shoal. China kicked Philippine fishermen out of the shoal about a decade ago, but allowed them to return as bilateral relations improved under former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. With relations souring again under current President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., it seems Beijing has decided to kick the fishermen out again. In Oceania and the Solomon Islands, since we seem to be on a little new Cold War streak here, the Biden administration is hosting another Pacific Islands summit starting on Monday, but it will do so without Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare. Uh, he's sending his foreign minister instead for reasons that aren't entirely clear, but probably have to do with his preference for China over the U.S., uh, in Vanuatu, that country's Prime Minister Sato Kilman is also skipping the summit, but in his case, he has an excuse. He needs to stay home to oversee a no-confidence vote on Monday. Kilman took power earlier this month after his predecessor, Ishmael Kalsakau, lost a confidence vote. Monday's vote is over whether or not to suspend Kalsakau from parliament. As you may recall, Kalsakau's removal was linked to a security deal that he reached with Australia, which isn't exactly a U.S. cutout in the Pacific region, but is certainly aligned with U.S. interests in a broad sense. Kilman has insisted on his neutrality, uh, though he's been put in office by the China-friendly faction in Vanuatu's legislature. He apparently wants to reopen the Australia Pact for revisions rather than just doing away with it altogether. And in the Cook Islands, among the developments expected to emerge from the summit, the Biden administration appears set to establish direct diplomatic relations with the Cook Islands and uh, Niue. Both countries are in free association with New Zealand, and right now the U.S. manages relations with them out of its New Zealand embassy. I'm unclear what this step will entail. The U.S. isn't building new embassies in either country, and I doubt it will name new ambassadors, but it could do something at the consulate level. Regardless, this will continue the administration's efforts to broaden the U.S. diplomatic footprint in the region. On to Africa and Niger. French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Sunday that he's withdrawing French military forces from Niger, along with his Nigerian ambassador, uh, Sylvain Ité. Uh, Niger's military government has effectively been imprisoning Ité and his staff in the French embassy in Niamey since Macron ignored their expulsion order last month. They'll apparently be repatriated immediately. The decision also leaves around 1,500 French military personnel in limbo, particularly as the military governments of Mali and Burkina Faso have already told Macron to get bent. Those French forces will be withdrawn probably over the next few months, and Macron may try to find them a new African base, Chad perhaps, in the meantime. Niger's ruling junta banned French aircraft, both military and commercial, from Nigerian airspace on Saturday. Uh, I'm assuming that decision didn't factor into Macron's announcement the following day, but it does illustrate how dismal French-Nigerian relations are at this point. 
in Somalia. A truck bombing in the central Somali city of the city of Beledwane uh, on Saturday killed at least 21 people and left another 52 wounded, according to local authorities. Nobody has yet claimed responsibility for the attack, but it would be surprising if this were not an Ashabab operation. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ugandan President Yauri Museveni announced on Sunday that his military carried out an airstrike in the DRC earlier this month, September 16th to be exact, that killed several members of the Islamic State-affiliated Allied Democratic Forces Group. Apparently among the dead was an ADF member named Mehdi Nkalubo, who, according to Museveni, uh, quote, has been the author of the bombs in Kampala, end quote. The ADF began as a Ugandan jihadist group that later relocated to the eastern DRC, but it does carry out attacks in Uganda from time to time. Uh, in Europe, uh, in Ukraine, there are a number of uh, short stories here. Russian airstrikes killed at least two people and left nine wounded in Kherson Oblast on Sunday. A Ukrainian drone strike apparently caused just some minor damage in Russia's Kursk Oblast, but that came after a fairly substantial two-day bombardment of Russian positions in Crimea on Friday and Saturday. Uh, Friday's attack damaged the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet uh, and left at least one Russian missing. Uh, Ukrainian officials are claiming that their attack killed at least nine people and wounded at least 16, including a senior Russian general. There's been no independent confirmation of that claim. If the facility was as damaged as videos and photos of the strike appear to suggest, however, it does seem likely that there were multiple casualties. Uh, down on the ground, Ukrainian officials are claiming that their forces have broken through Russian anti-tank defenses near a village called Verbove in Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, that would represent their deepest penetration into Russian lines since the start of the counteroffensive, if it's true. Again, there's no confirmation of this claim, but if the Ukrainians really have made a breakthrough, it should become apparent at some point. Uh, NBC News reported on Friday that Joe Biden has told Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that the U.S. will be sending him the Army Tactical Missile System, uh, or the ATACMS, fulfilling a long-standing Ukrainian demand. Uh, the uh, Army Tactical Missile System can be lo loaded into the rocket launchers the U.S. has already been providing Ukraine and has a range of about 300 kilometers or 180-ish miles. The U.S. apparently doesn't have all that many of these weapons in stock, so it will presumably need to engage some of our fine defense contractors to make more, which I'm sure they'll be happy to do. Uh, and the Russian artillery strike that supposedly killed at least 15 people in the Ukrainian city of Kostyantinivka uh, 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 sorry, uh, earlier this month turns out to probably have been a Ukrainian missile strike instead, a misfired Ukrainian air defense missile to be specific. Uh, after initially trying to block a New York Times investigation into the incident, Ukrainian authorities now say they've undertaken their own investigation. In Kosovo, a gunman attacked a police patrol in the northern part of that country on Sunday, killing one police officer before barricading themselves in a monastery for several hours while more police officers surrounded and besieged the place. The standoff had apparently come to an end as of Sunday night with at least three of the gunmen, uh, of some 30 of them in total, having been killed over the course of the day. Kosovan Prime Minister Albin Kurti characterized the incident as an act of terrorism and blamed it on the Serbian government, absent any evidence as far as I know. Serbian officials have denied any involvement. I'm unclear as to the identity of the gunmen, but the assumption at least seems to be that they are ethnic Serb partisans of some description.
In the Americas, in Colombia, the Colombian government and the Estado Mayor Central faction, or FARC-EMC, one of the most prominent of the ex-revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, or FARC splinter groups, announced a ceasefire on Tuesday. The 10-month truce is meant to kick in next month when government and FARC-EMC officials will begin negotiations on a more lasting peace deal. This will be the second go-around for a government EMC ceasefire, a previous attempt announced around the new year, collapsed in May. It's also another achievement for President Gustavo Petro's peace initiative coming on the heels of the six-month ceasefire the government and the National Liberation Army, or ELN, rebel group, began observing last month. Uh, And finally, in the United States, I assume most or all of you have heard by now that U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, and his wife Nadine have been indicted for allegedly taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in literal gold bars in bribes to grease the skids for U.S. weapon sales to Egypt. Menendez has faced multiple corruption allegations over the years, but until Friday remained shamefully chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, and a key Democratic Party power broker with respect to foreign policy. He has stepped down temporarily from that position, but remains, again, shamefully a sitting U.S. senator. He's faced numerous calls to resign from inside and outside of the party, which he's apparently decided to chalk up to racism, so that's nice. Uh, Menendez's foreign policy views are generally terrible, so even leaving aside the corruption, he will not be missed as Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair. Uh, Van Jackson, again, his, his sec- his, in his second appearance in tonight's newsletter, has more on this story in his undiplomatic newsletter. I'll read you a little bit of his piece. Two quick things to note about this Bob situation. One, as my Kirk Campbell miniseries, this is something else he's been working on, has tried to make clear, it literally pays to be a foreign policy hawk in Washington. Menendez has long been a leading voice of Democratic Party foreign policy on the Hill, and his record is pure sanctions, coercion, great power competition, and arms sales, the latter of which got him the latest indictment. The whole point of my Kurt history is not Kurt himself, who is a marginal public figure, even if he looms large as a policy celebrity. It's that the most successful Democratic operatives are national security popularists. They have no ideological mooring whatsoever beyond American exceptionalism and an ethos of opportunism. The ones with real political conviction, like Barbara Lee, get shunted by the party. The ones who do who just do Republican foreign policy but smarter get the guap and the clout. That's the Kurtz and the Bobs. Two. Isn't anyone curious how Bob Menendez is possible? Uh, and I'll leave it to you to click through and read the, the rest of that piece. Uh, if you're not subscribed to, to Undiplomatic, please do give it some consideration, Van. It's a, uh, an important voice, and we're trying to build sort of a, a foreign policy community at Substack of uh, similarly minded, I wouldn't say like-minded, because of course... Uh, you're always going to disagree about something, but at least similarly minded folks. Uh, and Van is definitely in that group. So check out his newsletter. And if, you, uh, if you're if you able, uh, maybe uh, subscribe to it. Um, that's all for us tonight. Uh, thanks, as always, for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And uh, thanks to those of you who are subscribed to this one, because you make foreign exchanges possible. Uh, you paid subscribers uh, in particular. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.